And we are live. Welcome to today's episode of MicroConf on Air. As always, I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every couple of Wednesdays, producer Xander and I get together and we live stream for about 30 minutes. We talk about topics around startups, bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped companies, things like seeking freedom, purpose, and relationships, but also seeking to build incredible companies that maybe change our life, maybe change the life of those lives of those around us. Thanks so much for joining me this week. I am excited to dig in today. Someone was was chiding me that I haven't been telling enough jokes on MicroConf on air, and I'm working on it. All right, maybe I'll work one in today as I as I bring my guest on. Today I'm excited to talk about design and not just design, but design fundamentals for non-designers. And this is a topic I've always loved folks who are experts in a space trying to communicate or doing their best to communicate the 80-20 of that space. So whether it's a developer who's teaching someone, hey, this is all you need to know. You can use no code and you can cobble this stuff together with, with Zapier and Bubble and Notion. Or it's a designer who says, I have all this knowledge. I have a decade or more of experience creating amazing looking designs. And the dirty little secret is if you know like five things, you can, you'll probably be twice as good at design tomorrow as you are today. And that's what we're talking about today. I'm going to bring my guest Tracy Osborne on in just a minute. But Tracy, if you don't know, is the program manager for Tiny Seed. But before she joined us a couple years ago at Tiny Seed, she had started her own startup called Wedding Lovely. And she has written multiple books, two or three, maybe four. She'll correct me when she gets on. But the one we're going to talk about today is called Hello Web Design. And the tagline is design fundamentals and shortcuts for non-designers, real world examples, and easy to understand principles to help you become a better designer. And what I like about today's episode is I could bring anyone on to talk design. And we would talk about a lot of theory and we would talk about stuff that probably isn't going to help you today. It isn't going to make your app look better or your web page look better today. But what Tracy has done in Hello Web Design, this compact 150 page book, is communicate a bunch of succinct, actionable tips for, I like to think of it as for developers, but frankly, it's just for anyone who wants their stuff to look better. So with that, let me welcome my guest, Tracy Osborne, to the show. Welcome back, Tracy. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You've uh, been on several episodes of Startups for the Rest of Us, if folks recognize your voice. Have you been on, on air as well? A couple times, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. a couple times. So you should be familiar to the audience. And of course, Tracy is at Tracy Makes on Twitter. And she is the uh, she's a part-time moderator of MicroConf Connect. <laughs> if you're in MicroConf Connect, you've probably been gently nudged by Tracy to thread <laughs> your conversations. I love it. You have not, you have, it's like a rite of passage. It's in the Tiny Seed Slack too. If Tracy has not nudged you to thread your combo, I don't know that you're posting enough in Slack. That's my rule. Hey, I do good things too. <laughs> yeah, I think moderating and encouraging people to thread yeah. is a good thing. So yeah, it um, is. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Tracy makes yeah. on Twitter. Okay, so to kick us off, there's a there's a lot to talk about here, and frankly, the, the uh, timing is good today because you self published this book, but now a publisher has picked it up, and this book is going to be re released in May. And pre-sales are available in the episode description of this episode. But if where can people go today if they want to pre-order the book? 
That's so <laughs> I'll preempt to say people will put in Hello Web Design and they'll find my website, which is Hello Web Books. There's no link over yet because I've upgraded my computer and I haven't fixed my development environment. I can't deploy yet. So not my website. <laughs> It'll be fixed soon oh, as soon as I figure out, figure out how to deploy again. Yeah, Just I know I need to switch time. it. <laughs> I have, I, I've been thinking about it, but if you search for no starch press, which is the publisher for hello web design, then you'll with hello web design, then you'll get the, the right link for the pre-order. And I think they're doing a pre-order, uh, coupon. It's right on the page. I think it's, if you, if you think you put in pre-order, you get 25% off the new book. Nice. So again, the, oh, so these you, days, I, <laughs> I see the oh, little bar now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. There we go. And maybe we can paste that into uh, MicroConf on air channel in MicroConf Connect as well. If you are in MicroConf Connect, go to the MicroConf on air channel and post any questions that you might have for Tracy, even if they might be answered in the book. I would love to have some interaction today. Obviously, I have questions about some things I read in the book, and we'll start there. But producer Xander will ping me as folks ask questions. So there's a couple things. One thing I want to start with is fonts. And to be clear, I asked you right before the, the, we went live, does the book focus on UX and usability or does it focus more on design? And you said much more on design, on making things look pretty. Why did you decide to do that rather than focus on UX in this one? I find it's funny when you say make things look pretty, because I think that's like to most designers, they don't want to say that they and it is true that user experience matters more than how things look. But I found that there was a lot of people who weren't designers that struggled with that part of things. They did just want to make sure that their website was easy to look at. And it all flows together. Like how your website looks is going to help how it's how it works, the user experience. So if you're able, one of the biggest principles in the book is talking about clutter and actually pretty much everything I go through in the book relates to clutter. The font choice can relate to clutter. Their color choices can relate to clutter. And if you reduce clutter, you can make your website a look better and then easier to find the information that the, the customer needs and wants. And you can help push people to do the things that you want them to do. And so clutter is, it's just both like a, a look, make things look nicer, but also make things more usable in that way. But a lot of people are just like, how do I improve my slide decks how do i improve my landing page design and they did they do just want to know how do i make this look like a professional designer did it when i don't have the you know resources to hire out for it so that's where that book comes in i was like i definitely talk about user experience that is the most important part about a web page website and how things work but how things look i think answers is a question a lot of people have that's not answered by a lot of design articles out design articles and books out there Absolutely. And there is, I, I think some people undervalue the visual aspect of it, because I know when I see a new web app that I've never heard of, and it has just killer design, my first, it's a first impression. And I will get the impression of, wow, these folks know what they're doing. That's what I, they may not, but that's the impression I get. You, you, me, and, and Anar have been evaluating hundreds and hundreds of applicants for a tiny C batch three. And in the first five seconds of seeing their website, you at least get, there's some signal there and you dig mm -hmm. in further, you figure out, oh, what's the pricing like? What does the app do? Whatever. But the moment that you see a site, if it blows you away, or if it at least is, meets a minimum bar, it's okay. At least these folks know what they're doing. Some sites we hit, they have a great business, you know, might be doing 15,000 a month, but you hit the site and it's, oh, what's going on here? This is, this looks like worse than Craigslist. It's like a late 90s site. And I always have to check myself and, and think, 
they're doing something right here because they built a great business. But I do think that hitting that minimum bar is really helpful for potential customers. When they hit your website, if they think you're legit and professional, then they're going to be more likely to, to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And a lot of founders, they think that means that they need to hire out for a designer, which is a whole process of contracts and revisions and everything like that. And I find that when a founder has those base fundamentals, like they know just enough to be dangerous and they can get pages out and updates their app out as fast as possible, not having to go out to a contractor and they still look good, then they can execute much faster. Exactly. And that's something I've hired designers quite a bit, but early in my career, when I was moving from developer to entrepreneur, I had to put landing pages together without any assistance. And so I needed at least some fundamentals. I needed that 80-20. And even like when we launched Tiny Seed, was it two and a half years ago? Overnight, I just put up a a landing page from lead pages and I needed to make it look good and the template looked okay. But some of the fundamental stuff you talk about in your book are things that I had picked up and read about years ago. And I think that they're super helpful for folks who'd... I have a kid yelling in the background as I'm schooling, but I'm sure you can hear him. But it's things like, I, let's talk through a few of these things. So clutter was is a big one. And I think that is probably the number one mistake I see lay people make, non-designers make. You talk about using a grid. I had never heard of that before I started talking to a photographer friend of mine who was like, I break you know, the camera frame up into a grid. And then they said, yeah, it's a design concept. Do you want to talk people through how you might use a grid in, in design? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize they're using grids if they're already using a CSS framework because that's usually built in. So things like Bootstrap and Skeleton, these other frameworks will help align all of your objects into a grid and it helps reflow things. So it's usually built into a lot of CSS frameworks. CSS makes it really easy to align to the grid. But this also applies if you're doing something like working on a slide. And basically what it is that when you have information, like a lot of different chunks of information on a page and they might be a little bit offset from each, from each other. If they're not l- aligned to a vertical column, those little offsets are gonna add to that feeling of clutter. It's gonna add this like little feeling of like unease, this like things aren't lined up, so this looks a little bit weird. And you might be thinking, like a lot of people think, oh, it's close enough, but it's like that unconscious, you can unconsciously feel that things, something should be lined up and they aren't, and it leads to this uncomfortableness, and that's not something you really want in a design. So when you, again, web pages and bootstrap and everything, thankfully take this away where if you have a three column grid, then usually things are all lining up on the same vertical axis. But this is also something you wanna pay attention to when you're doing something that's outside of web design. If you have a chunk at the top and a chunk at the bottom, just make sure that they're, if they're close enough, just move them over into that same axis. And it's gonna make the design more cohesive and make it feel a little bit more professional and at a probably an unconscious level, a conscious level, Definitely an unconscious level. Very good. We have a question from YouTube from Nitin. He says, too many cooks spoil the broth. Do too many designers spoil the design too? What's your opinion on that, Tracy? Ooh, that's a good question. I haven't worked on a multi-design team in a while. I'm usually the one in charge. <laughs> I usually just, like for Tiny I just tell you what's what we should do. <laughs> this is what we're doing. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the hard part about design is that the design as compared to say like coding or whatnot is so like qualitative. It's a lot of an opinions. A lot of people saying, oh, this looks better than this other thing. A lot of people fighting over it. And that's when you should just go back down to metrics 
And then you can, like, if you have a conflict between two designs, between two designers, and you're still hitting all those marks so that it's the user experience is good, that people are achieving what they need to achieve in whatever design it is. And then it's just a conflict between two designers in terms of what they feel it should look. Then you can fall back onto data. You can start testing those designs. So that's usually what I say when there's like too many designers, too many people working on something. In general, though, I think, I feel like, you know, it shouldn't be like, we shouldn't not hire multiple designers. I think designers generally work really well together and hopefully we'll have a good idea. And again, my book teaches how to make things look good, but it is more important how things work. And those designers can work together to make sure that user experience, the usability, the, all the things that you need for a well, a good working design are in place. And then it's just arguing over aesthetics. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I, I think it really depends. Do too many product designers or too many co-founders ruin the design, so to speak, of the company or of the product? And it's, it depends on how they get along. It depends on exactly. if people are, are married to their ideas or want to truly seek the best idea. So I don't think it's a matter of it being too many or too few. I think it's a matter of personality types. I used to say all the time at, at Drip, when we'd have four or five of us discussing a feature or discussing what to build next. And I would start the meeting by saying, we don't care whose idea any of this is. We want the best ideas and we want the best, we want the best results out of this. So let's go with the smart choice, not the ego choice. And that I think is relevant for product design, company yeah. design, and of course, visual. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about fonts a little bit. What elements should people consider when making a choice about fonts? Because that is I have, I know so little about fonts and even in the, almost the introduction of your book, you were already addressing typefaces and fonts. Yeah. I, you know, that's, it's one of those key pieces into a design that can be very overwhelming, especially back in the day when the web first started, we had what, 10 different fonts to choose from. You had Tahoma and Verdana and all those other ones. And so at least you had a limited set in order to choose for your web designs. But now you have things like Google fonts and Adobe Type Kit and, th and those kind of resources where you have pages upon pages of web fonts you can choose from. And then it gets really overwhelming because you want to have a design that has something unique, like a really nice looking font choice that's readable and whatnot. And then it's just, wait, there's too many choices here. So A, I think it comes down to clutter again. Like there are cluttery fonts and there's non-cluttery fonts. There's professional designers can very they can make a cluttery, crazy display font work on their websites. They can they have more skills in order to do that. But for beginning designers, I say just throw those display skill, excuse me, display fonts out the window and just choose something that is clean. I find that again, just reducing clutter is the number one thing that anyone can do if they want to make a website look better. And that also applies to fonts. Um, and then the second thing is when you're overwhelmed by the choices of what to use from Google fonts or Typekit, you don't know what is a readable font versus the other ones. There are a lot of different resources online where people narrow down. They like it's like the top ten Google font list or something like that, or the top twenty fonts in Typekit. And so you can get this like limited set that's already been chosen by someone who has like a background design that says that says these are the best fonts in this like gigantic set. And then you only have twenty to choose from for your design, and you mm -hmm. know that they're going to work well because it's already been narrowed down for you. 
And something you say, again, I'm on page nine of your book. I have it up here and it's <laughs> limit yourself to two different types. I've read past that. I have that up on my screen, but limit yourself to two different typefaces. While you can use one typeface for your navigation, another for your text, another for your buttons, another for your headlines, it will make your design feel chaotic. Restrict the number of typefaces you use and use bold, italics, all caps, and other transforms to create variety and indicate emphasis. So two, two typefaces, is that your rule of thumb? It is. Yeah, definitely. And again, when you have a CSS framework, you're able to say like heading font this, body font this. It does make it easier to work with just like a limited set. This is another piece of advice. Again, it goes into if you're creating slides or doing something else that is in web design because you're on, you're using a, what is it, Keynote and it could be like, tempting to be like, oh, here, I choose this font for this headline and choose this font for these bullet points and use this font for the text. And then things can get very chaotic very quickly. And then it's just, oh, this is you know chaotic. It's cluttery. It doesn't look like a good design. So then draw it back down, try to use just a set of two, maybe one for the headline, one for the, the body text. And whenever you need to have some kind of transition, some kind of like emphasis, then you can just play around with bolding and italics to add that emphasis as you need it without changing the fonts. And it's going to make your design look a lot nicer. Yeah. A big thing I've picked up from really gifted designers that I've worked with over the years is that the simpler designs tend to be better. It's not more fonts, it's fewer. It's not more what more elements on the page it's stripping them away it's the clutter and man i told you it's, it's, it's all about it's all yeah. about clutter and whatever you can do to strip it down again there's experienced designers who can make clutter work and there are, can be very mm -hmm. there's can be websites and designs that really work well that you would call cluttery but as yep. a beginning per designer if you wanted like design time from scratch just go with reducing clutter as much as possible and it's going to get you that 80 20. Yeah. Do you talk at all about logo design in your book or do you have opinions on that? Because we have a question from the audience <laughs> on it. I don't. I do have opinions on it, though. Okay. So what is the question? Cool. You, cool if we dive in. Yeah. So it's from Justin Jackson. He says, it feels like one place founders skimp is having a logo designed. What factors should founders consider when getting a logo designed? Should they always be bespoke, you know, truly custom designs? And what's the cost for a custom logo design? Generally, we both, you and I both have opinions on this. I'll let you go first. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like our opinion is going to be the same. And it's the, this is my opinion that's going to get all of my colleagues back in art school yelling at me <laughs> because I, I truly believe that founders don't need to worry about the logo design for a while and do not worry about it in the beginning stages of your business. Like your logo is one of those things that's not going to affect a lot of things. It's not going to affect how you get to product market fit. So don't worry about trying to find a designer or trying to spend 5K for a logo, which is probably about the going rate for a proper logo. Don't worry about that. I do recommend using things like, there's designers out there that are really good at quick, creating quick logos, like the ones we had you know, done for MicroConf, which is a great logo, but we didn't do the full logo design process. And maybe that's something we'll do someday later, but it's not something that MicroConf needed to do. It's not something that most startups need to do. What you need is something that, looks that kind of ties everything together. And you can just do that by working with Fiverr. You can work with other contract designers, just get a, a nicely formatted logo, like in terms of the, the font for your logo, your, what is it? The typeface, or I forget what it's called. Wordmark? The text part of your wordmark. Thank you. Text part of your wordmark. A symbol is nice, not necessary. A symbol is nice. And just see what you can do for 
the first year of your business. And you'll feel like if yeah. you need to have more branding, the whole reason why logos cost $5,000, because it's not just the logo, that's the full branding process when you're trying to figure out how this logo is going to reflect upon all of your design materials and how the company is represented. And you're talking about like, how do you want to display yourself to customers? So it's a lot, that's a $5,000 question, right? Is how you want to display yourself. Startups don't need to do that. Founders don't need to do that. Get something that works, that you're not embarrassed about, put it on your landing page and just roll with it, get to product market fit. And you can go through that whole process later, but definitely not in the beginning. Yep. Yeah, we are of the same mind. And, and <laughs> I had a bunch of small products that never really had logos. It was just a font and, and the word or the domain name. I remember the first kind of logo-ish thing that that we had or that I had was with Hittail, which was an SEO keyword SaaS. And the designer, I wanted the site redesigned and he's, I just put a placeholder logo in there and it was just the word Hittail with an arrow or something. And I was like, that's great, a logo. Yeah. And that was the logo the whole time. We printed that on t-shirts. And then the and he said, I'm not, not a logo designer. And I said, you're sure good enough. When we did the drip logo design, Derek did a similar thing. He's like, made a droplet of water. I don't know if we want to keep it. And I'm like, yes, we do. And that, that was enough. So be, again, in the early days, and, and then eventually we, you know, we sold the company to, to lead pages and yes, they did a full logo design process. And that was a rebranding process where they picked new colors and it was like, is drip more of a dolphin or a bear? Literally that, those were the conversations that yeah. they would have. And it was, I'm guessing tens of thousands of dollars to go through all of that. Mm -hmm. It didn't just come with a logo. It came with this whole book that was the styling package and stuff. Yeah. The um, branding book. These days, mm -hmm. I put exactly, those together. It's all the colors and the fonts and <laughs> yeah. the thing and the, you know, how the spacing should be, this thing this. should be always yes. this part far apart from this other thing. It goes incredibly, right. it goes with incredible amount of details. It's also what the, my least favorite class when I was doing graphic design. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you too. Should they always be custom? Not in the early days. Like you said, we had both a microconf and a tiny seed logo designed for, I believe it was like 600 bucks a piece. And those were, those were then the last year or two, right? A microconf one mm -hmm. was maybe a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And we had a logo before then, but it was dated and it didn't look, it wasn't the, the optimal thing. So anyways, yeah, and yeah, the cost microconf logo, one was I, hard. <laughs> I will say it yeah, was hard. I, we did spend yeah, a lot of time going on it. So it's definitely, yep. even if a simple $600 logo can still be a long process. Oh, cause we were like collaborating and talking about, should it be this? And we were trying to figure out colors too. And we were, there was just, mm -hmm. there was a lot to it. And as you said, the going rate that I hear for just like a logo design from a legit logo designer is about five grand and sometimes mm -hmm. 10 if they're more premium. But again, I don't believe I've ever paid more than 600. I'm just more of a bootstrapper. So I don't think I've ever paid more than six. Maybe we did three sessions. Maybe it was like $900 for Microcon for Tiny Seed. And yeah. I like them. I think they're good. Yeah. Yeah. We aren't, we're not in a position where we need to have that full branding That's suite with everything defined and all the rules and yeah. everything like that. Cause we're a very small organization. It's just the four of us. And like this, we know what colors to use. We know what fonts to use. We know where to put the logo um, and we don't have a lot of rules. But if you ever got to a point, microconf say, there's like, there's probably big conferences out there that have done that full branding process because then it informs all the parts of the yep. conference, all of the posters and they get the person doing everything. So it's never just a logo. It would be that full rebranding process. We didn't need that. And I feel like that's the kind of the same thing as a startup not needing that full rebranding process before they're cut their their company really needs it. Yeah. And I could see us doing a full, if microconf becomes 10 people or 20 or whatever, I, we probably will need more, more guidance on 
because different people be putting content up mm -hmm. and different people be creating printed exactly. materials and t-shirts yeah. and it's just like what well, you that's when you need the specs but when it's a few bootstrap mostly bootstrap founders hacking away trying to trying to get there it's a little early Totes. all right let me see next question no more questions from the audience yet okay so one thing i want to ask you where you look for design inspiration but first white space <laughs> this is the ultimate clutter reducer in your words one of the biggest mistakes new designers make is pushing items too close to each other talk briefly about white space then we'll talk about design inspiration and then we'll wrap this amazing episode of microconf on air yeah, if you think of, I would say a startup landing page, and a lot of people put a lot of emphasis to above the fold. And there's some things back, people say that the above the fold doesn't matter anymore. A lot of people scroll now. I agree with that. So the, I don't think the above, above the fold is like the, where all your information needs to be, but it is going to be your first impression. And because it's the first impression, the first thing people see, there's a tendency of being like, I want to have all the things in the first impression. I want to have all the most important feature points. I want to have the headlines. I want to have the subheadlines. I want to have a lot of content that addresses all these different points. I want to have the button that goes to here and to here. And so the above the fold area can get very busy, very cluttery, very fast. And that's actually going to not convert as well. It's not going to work as well. It's going to overwhelm people. It's going to look unprofessional. It's going to look cluttery and people are going to leave. So then conversely, if you have a very simple page, and I was I actually just did a um, design breakdown on Twitter recently, I should find it again, but I took Derek's, Derek Reimer's Savvy Cal, and I pointed out all of the little details he had in Savvy Cal's landing page. It's just a gorgeous design, lots of white space, lot of breathing room. And so what that does is that all that breathing room and white space then brings more importance to the pieces of information that are there, that short headline, subheadline, the button, a little bit of imagery, there's the logo and whatnot, but you're not like bouncing your eye over everything. You're not like looking at a thousand different things. Derek is essentially through white space and this is what white space can do. It just draws your eye to the most important things. And then you can tell the story based on where those things are on the page. A lot of people really want to just keep filling in those holes, keep pushing things together. But when you have that white space, it's going to look more professional and then you can tell that story. Yes, said. All right, we actually, I, I think I'm going to skip the design inspiration question because we have a question from the audience and our asker, I don't have his name, his or her name, but they say, I find that most dev tools most development tool screenshots of their features can be a bit busy or boring. Sometimes it's code, numbers, analytics, etc. Oh, it's from uh, Tony Chan of Cloud Forecast. He says, any design advice for dev tool SaaS companies to help visualize these features where screenshots of their product might not work well? I have some thoughts, Wait. but I'll throw it to you first. Can you rephrase it? I think I missed the, the actual question. Yeah, it's, do you have advice for people building more technical um, kind mm, of mm -hmm. SaaS companies to help visualize features where a screenshot of that feature just doesn't work well because it's just a bunch of numbers. It's like a list of numbers or it's code or something, which isn't very visually appealing. Right. So this does get into the harder engineering problems area. And I'm gonna call out Savvy Cal again, <laughs> just because I was just looking at his webpage and he has a little interactive 
screenshot box, but you can interact with it and you get this feel for how SavvyCal works because you can interact right on the homepage, even though you're not actually inside the program. That does take more engineering and development time because you have to get that all coded up and everything working well. But then it does give your customers that like actual experience that a screenshot wouldn't necessarily show. So it's like, what can you do with interactions? Easier might be using GIFs where you show the walkthrough of how the process goes. Another thing I just reminded, I just thought of was, I'm not sure if Stripe is still doing this, but their documentation back in the day was interactive where it'd say, here's how you use Stripe. And you can take your, take the little piece API of key. Uh, API key and you can throw that into your terminal and run it and it would update on the website and kind of show you that process as you go through using their API. So again, that interactive feel, does take more development work and more time, but it does, it leads to this woo moment where people are like, oh, this is how it actually works. So it's not just, oh, here's a yep. static, boring thing. It's okay, you get that wow moment up front. Absolutely, and that's, I was gonna call out Stripe, both if you way back to, let's say five, six years ago, look at Stripe's website, have they been around that long? I think so. They they always had <laughs> code snippets on them and they still do. Right now, think of what Stripe is. Stripe is really an API with some reports built on top of it. And if you go to their website above the fold, it's a headline and then it's a picture of some attractive graphs with dollar signs in them. And it's okay, they process money, picture their mobile app, which you may or may not have, but you scroll down the page halfway and it's what you're talking about, Tracy, where it's this an animated GIF type thing that is code being written into a terminal. And if I'm a developer, I'm instantly resonating with this. I don't even know node.js and this is written in node but i'm like riveted by this as i'm watching it so that's the kind of even if it's not fully i believe theirs is like truly interactive or something yeah maybe it is just a gift but it's that kind of stuff derek is as you called out is also really good at these things i used uh, to have it creative mm -hmm. yes if it's just a gift right. well, they used to I, have it that way but yeah it's one of those kind of things where a gift can work just as well as interactive and it's going to be easier to set up because yeah. then you can just record yourself Yep. Yep. All right. Last, we're a little bit over time, but I want to get this question in from Justin Jackson. He says, when you're looking at a website, what are two to three things you always look at to evaluate how well it is designed? The headline, like what is the, the piece of text at the top that tells me what that page is about? And I, I actually talk about my book. One of the things that I, I recommend to do, one of the, it's reduce clutter and train your design eye. Those are two things that you can do to become a better designer. And I, what I have, I'm in this habit of always looking at web pages and thinking critically about them because that makes me a better designer. Cause I can say, all right, this headline, it says this, do I think that does that work for me? Do I think that's the best headline? Why, if it does work, then I try to think about why is it working? And again, calling out Derek and Savvy Call, that's the whole reason why I did that breakdown of Savvy Call, because it's showing, okay, you're looking at a website and then you know, look at the headline and you can think critically what the headline is doing. And that's going to insert that information in your brain so you can pull it out later when you're working on your own designs. So like headline is number one, the you know, what is the action on the page? What is the CTA? What's the button? What's the, the thing that the person wants me to do? And again, think critically about that. Is the color eye-catching? Is the text on it actionable? Is it interesting or is it boring or is it robotic? Where is the position compared to the rest of the content of the page? Is it clickable? Does it feel clickable? Does it make me want to click on it? So that's headline, button, 
And the third thing I want to say is maybe just like the overall, maybe the white space, I would say. I was, I was going to say the overall appearance, but it does does come down to that white space because that, that white space is going to lead your eye to those two important things. And white space doesn't have to be white, by the way. It can be like a patterned background. That still counts as white space. It's just what's the space of the page that's not like immediately causing you to read or react or look at like a specific image right in your product. So it could be like a design in the background. Don't think it has to be white, but it does tie into those two important things. The, what is this page about and what is it you want me to do? And it kind of, that supports those two first actions. All right. Amazing. Speaking of, uh, CTAs, you should head to nostarch.com and look for hello web design and pre-order the book. Tracy has, we have, I, I believe in this entire conversation, we maybe have talked through four pages of the book. So there's another 150 that people can get tons of. I was like, you read the first few pages where I just, I just took everything and I just shortened it to one yep. sentence for each chapter. <laughs> so you yep. can just read awesome. the first two pages and get a good idea for the book, but then goes into the depth into depth for the rest of the book. But it is really quite short. I don't have one anymore because the self-published ones, I've given them all away at this point, but it's literally just like that big. So it's actionable yeah. and easy to read. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining me, Tracy. If folks want to keep up with you, you are Tracy Makes on Twitter. Thanks for having me. All right. Yes, indeed. As we roll out, oh, I was supposed to tell her a joke. All right, I'll just tell it to you. So you want to hear a joke? Parsing HTML with regex. That was it. That was the one. State of Independent SaaS Report is out. Head to stateofindiesass.com if you haven't checked it out. And we got mentioned on the Mailshake blog, one of the 27 best startup or SaaS conferences, which is amazing. Thank you so much to Hay and Stripe for being our headline partners again in 2021. And next week, we're chatting with the hosts of the Software Social Podcast, Mish Hansen. And I guess that's not next week, that's March 3rd and Colleen Schnettler. So thank you guys so much for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>